Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. Let's begin with prayer. Um, you see the Collect for 20, Trinity 21. This was one of Luther, uh, Luther's students, Veit Dietrich. These are the Collects that I put up on the screen. I have been the last couple of weeks. And uh, so they were composed by uh, a Lutheran for Lutheran worship. So... A little, maybe a little bit different focus. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who by thy Son has promised us the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life, we beseech thee, do thou by thy Holy Spirit so quicken our hearts that we in daily prayer may seek our help in Christ against all temptations, and constantly believing in his promise, obtain that for which we pray, and at last be saved. Through thy Son, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one true God, world without end. Amen. I feel like you went back in time 40 years, right, to the red hymnal. These and thou's. Um, note, this is the Collect for Trinity 21, and the reason why I put that there is that uh, the reading we're going to look at from John chapter 4 is the gospel reading for Trinity 21. So you'll hear this um, after St. Michael and all angels. So in October? Yeah. Like the first or second week in October, this will be our gospel text for that week. Um, Note what the prayer asks for here. Thy son has promised us forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life. Okay? Uh, You know those those three well from the catechism. We beseech thee, or we ask you, that by your Holy Spirit so quicken. um, Remember we used to say quicken the dead? What do we mean by quick? Enliven? Yeah, life. Right, because remember the thing called the quickening. That's when um, the mother would feel, you know, the first kick or so, feel the baby's movement. That in the ancient world, they thought that's when life came into the child, is when you first felt their movement. Of course, we we know better now, um, with ultrasounds and all the technology we have, that uh, the heart's beating at what, ten days or something? Is that right? It's pretty soon. So it's like the first thing to get going. So that's why you have that fetal heart, heartbeat bills that get passed. It's, it's an attempt to try to get you know, abortion to be prevented as soon as possible, because that's like the first thing that we can detect easily. All right. Um, so enliven our hearts that we in daily prayer may seek our help in Christ. All right. So direct our, direct our prayers or our hopes towards Christ, and namely against all temptations. And, and believing in his promise, obtain that for which we pray and at last be saved. So you'll see how that intersects well uh, with our story today. Let's read it. John chapter 4, verse 43. Uh, read through the end of the chapter. Or 354, excuse me. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. <clears throat> oh, are you in John 4, 43? Oh, five. <laughs> yeah, you're one chapter ahead of us. You're moving ahead. That's good. But we're not there yet. Okay. I thought I started in the middle of the prayer. That was a little odd start, yeah. 
After the two days, he left us for Galilee. <clears throat> now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, Galileans welcomed him. He had seen that all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, where they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. <clears throat> there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal the son, <clears throat> who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. When he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. There you go. All right, so uh, remember our context, right? So what had just happened, we studied last week, Jesus and the Samaritans, right, who came back to him. Right, so he's talking about food with the disciples, and then many Samaritans came who believed in him because of what? The Samaritan woman at the well, her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So then they came to him, they stayed with him, and they believed because of his, in verse 41, because of his words. words. Yeah. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we ourselves have heard, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now some people would, and actually this is probably how I've interpreted uh, the following text, is that Jesus puts the Samaritans, this is in that second paragraph there, against the Galileans, right? Because he'd already been at Cana, and he performed a sign, and they believed because of the sign, turning the water into wine. Now we have the Samaritans who believe in his word, which is clearly superior, right? <laughs> to believe in his word. I said that sarcastically. And now we have more Galileans, and they believe because of the, the sign, right? He heals the nobleman's son. So, so then um, the, the question is made, or the, the statement is made, well, uh, mostly because of what Jesus himself says. What does he say? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. But then that means, well, word, the preaching of the word is, is superior to the performance of miracles. Uh, but that actually does violence to the text itself, because what does it say? They believed because of the... What does it say? Word. Well, no, it's because of what he did, because of the signs, right? He, he heals the nobleman's son, and they believe because of what he did, and actually that he did it at the hour that he said he did. So I don't think they're actually in opposition, and clearly the, the sign is performed by the, by Jesus, of course, but by the word. The word, yeah. So it's not like, like the sign is somehow, I mean, it is lesser, I, I suppose, in a sense, but it's, it's, they did believe because of the sign, because of what he did with his, his word, right? 
So in one case, the word with the Samaritan woman um, reveals everything about her, right? That's, he, she knew, knew everything about me, or he knew everything about me. And now, um, as with the water into wine, now here, actually water into wine, I, they must have figured out that it was Jesus who did it. <laughs> I get, we didn't talk about that, did we? Yeah, but they believed in him because of what he did. Um, but here, you know, so word spread, probably by the steward of, that, of, the, of the wedding. You know, who was responsible for doling out the wine. Um, no, it would have been the servants who actually saw it happen. Here, the, it's also servants, isn't it? Because the master asks his servants who come out to him, um, am I in there? Oh yeah, I didn't go far enough down for you. The, mass, the servants come out to meet him and told him that his son was recovering, so he asked them at the hour when she began to get better. So they're the ones who saw the sign Actually, the master of the household believes as not just because of the sign, but because of the the word, the testimony of the servants who saw the sign. So all I'm suggesting is that this idea that that these two texts are opposed to each other, I don't think that's actually valid. And some might say that. You might encounter that. Yeah, Ron. That's interesting, Marie. The man says it. He took Jesus at his word and departed. So he, he had belief that he was going to be healed. Mm-hmm. But then he had to verify that by asking, what time did he got healed? Yeah, I know. He wanted a sign even though he had the word. Yeah. And I think, rightfully, if you, when you hear me preach this, I'm, I'm sure. Because, I mean, it's such a central theme there is that, that demand for signs. You know, and that's what you heard in the collect at the top of the prayer. You know, that we pray... Um, that we may seek our help in Christ against all temptations, believing in his promise, obtain that for which we pray. Not having seen the actual answer to the prayers, now believe. You catch the difference there? So we pray, and then we get the answer to the prayers, and now we believe? No, actually, we pray, we believe, and that we receive what we ask is a, is a fruit of that. Um, actually, you can't see, maybe this is an important point, you can't see the answer to prayers apart from faith. Because you could attribute the answer to whatever. And, and again, it, it's an old trope. I know you've probably heard it so many times. You know, what's the whole thing about prayer? Sometimes he, he's silent. Sometimes he's... But he always answers prayer just not the way you'd like him to or something like that. I've heard people say this. God always answers prayer. You just have to trust that the answer he gives you is the right one or something like that. Uh, which actually is true. Is true. The problem with the answer to prayers is that we ask for one thing, which may or may not be in conformity with what God has promised, you know, and he may answer in a way that's good for us, but that we don't actually, that's not the answer we wanted, right? Because our faith is not, again, aligned with his will. So the reason, one of the reasons for prayer, the many reasons for prayer is that we would search God's word, that we would pray according to God's word, and then that would align our hopes, our dreams, our wants, whatever, with God's will as he's expressed it to us, you see? Um, and maybe that's a note about prayer. A lot of times prayer is, at least in my experience, it's just extemporaneous and it has nothing to do with God's word, which isn't really all that helpful. I mean, in a sense it is. You get it off your chest, I suppose. Um, but much better, like, like like Dietrich does here at the top, is to say, here's the basis on which I'm praying, that you've promised Forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life to me. That's your promise. And on the basis of that, I can ask um, for help against all temptations because you have promised to deliver me. Right? 
through forgiveness. Actually, deliverance from temptation is forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You know, People think, oh, I'll just never be tempted. No, to be delivered from temptation is to be forgiven for your temptation. As well. I mean, it's both, but yeah, as well. Everything about that? Okay. I've thrown a lot at you. So Jesus enters Galilee. So we, we have the Samaritans. Now we have more Galileans. Um, you see that if you try to map like Jesus's routes, um, like it, sometimes it gets a little swirly girly. You know, what do you call that? Whirly, whirling dervish? Something, I don't know. Uh, same thing with Paul's missionary journeys. You know, it's like, oh, they look so nice and linear and you read it and like, no, oh, he goes there and he goes back there and then he goes over here and you're kind of, you're doing those, what do you call them, switchbacks? Yeah. So that's Jesus here. He, he was going from Judea to Galilee. He went to Galilee. Then he comes back to Samaria. Now he's going back to Galilee and he's on his way home. So what took him to Samaria? Do we remember? Back in three? What's the one at the well? He went to Samaria for her sake. <laughs> it's like, it's not, it's out of the way, but let's go down there and then we'll come back because there's this woman I'm going to meet and we're going to convert some Samaritans early in, in the story here. It's pretty incredible. Uh, but remember, he's still trying to take off, trying to get away from Judea because he perceived um, that they were out to get him already. And you saw that at the beginning of chapter four where it said, what? Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, or when Jesus learned that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself did not baptize, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he, he, suspect, he knows that they're out to get him already. And uh, specifically, back in 2.23, sorry to go so fast here, there. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Oh, is that wrong? No, it's true. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew that all people he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew that he was man. All right. So the the news of Jesus has traveled, and uh, you're going to hear it in the sermon today because we're getting towards the end of Jesus' ministry. It's it's Holy Week, and um, these Pharisees are out now. They're now they want blood. They they've had enough of him undermining all of their authority and power. Right, so then he preaches against them pretty, pretty viciously, um, which is not necessarily the Jesus we like to hear from. <laughs> it's like, where's their forgiveness for the Pharisee? There's been forgiveness for the Pharisee. Uh, that's not the problem, is that they don't want it. All right, questions so far. Where is he going? That's an important note. Departed for Galilee. Um, And then he says this, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So where's his hometown or his home country? Yeah, it's Nazareth. Um, In John's gospel, he seems to hang out more in Capernaum. Yeah, so there's a little bit of maybe a question there, but certainly his home country is Nazareth. uh, And that comes up kind of pejoratively, right? It's like, can any good come from Nazareth? (laughs) It's like, can anything good come from Green Bay? I don't know. <laughs> oh, it stinks to be a Colts fan today. Not that it was going to be a great season anyway, but they just ran out of luck. I, I, don't, I mean, after that whole injury and then playing in Europe, and I would check out too. Plus, you got money in the bank. 
You're doing fine. Uh, Jesus, okay, John 2 is referred, is referring to Galilee as his hometown. All right. Generally speaking, and maybe and specifically, I would say Nazareth as well. When he says, though, he's rejected in his hometown, it, I think it's a little bit of a what, literary ploy. I, can't, I don't know what the right term is. It, it's a sleight of hand, if you like, because Jesus is not rejected in Nazareth. Where is he rejected? Jerusalem. Yeah, in Jerusalem. So the, so the word there for, for hometown, I'd actually, did I look this up? I think I did. Dun, dun, dun. What verse is that? 44, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually, um, I mean, it's translated as hometown or home, what does it say, home country? But the word is um, patridi, from which we hear. Fatherland. Yeah, it's fatherland, right? Now, uh, the land of our fathers, like for you, it would be not Sherman Center, for most of you, it would be Germany. It would be the father, their Vaterland, right? Deutschland, Deutschland. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that makes me think of the producers and <laughs> beer and pretzels. And so nice. And where did the Germans come from? And where did the Germans come from? Yeah, the, you know, largely the Gauls, and they're coming from, you know, anyway, let's not talk about the history of Germany. <laughs> So here, too, when he says hometown, it's fatherland, which gender neutral. I mean, it's in every one of our Bible translations. It just can't avoid. Like, why would you do that? Why don't you just translate it fatherland? Because that's actually a pretty precise translation. Well, because, you know, now we're emphasizing the fathers. And we're like, well, yeah, but that's that's how the the Christians, but the Jews, too. That's how they told their history is father to son. And like, it's not, um, what, do you, what do they call it, misogyny or... Um, you know, it's, it's just father to son. That's how they did their heritage. So, uh, and, and we still have that anyway because boys keep their name and girls lose their name. So, so it's it's the lineage of your of your husband or of your father. Sorry, it's part of the deal. No honor in his hometown. So that's they're out to get him from Judea because he has no honor there in Judea, yeah, namely in. Jerusalem, yeah. Does that make sense? Now John just throws it out, just as a parenthetical note here in one verse. Whereas if you, I gave you the citations there, I think. No, I didn't. Um, but maybe if your Bible has them, I thought about writing them down. Uh, you've got a story: Matthew thirteen fifty-seven, Mark six four, Luke four twenty-four. They all have this whole rejection of Jesus in his hometown, actually in the context of a, of a narrative. So whereas John says, yeah. In effect, he's actually saying, just go read the other Gospels for more on that. I'm just going to throw it out as a statement right here. Uh, But it does come back later on. I told you to look forward to John chapter 7 uh, and John chapter 8. And, wow, we don't have time. We'll get to it eventually. Um, But he's down again in, well, he's actually in Galilee um, because did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. That's already in chapter 7, verse 1. All right? And then, the, but the Feast of Tabernacles at hand, so then he says, let's go down to Judea, right? Which he's putting his own life on the line. Huh. Uh, that'll play out, right? And also the, the life of his disciples. Then if you look at the end of chapter 8, there's all sorts of narrative 
in chapter 7. Sorry it's going by so quick on your screen. It is on mine too. At the end of chapter 8, he says... Oh, didn't quite get there yet. I didn't go far enough. Yeah, here we go. Uh, he's in, This is the, his end of his, that trip to Judea. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and glad. And the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, there it is, I am. So I'm God. Because right? that's, that's God's name. I am. Not I was. And I, also I was and I will be as well as all included in that. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself hid himself and went out of the temple. All right. And then he's going to start going home. <laughs> right. So this whole being rejected by in his fatherland, it actually plays out very vividly just in a few chapters. So it's kind of like uh, I've been reading a lot of Stephen King um, for some reason. I just it, it's easy reading for fiction. He writes. He's very readable. Because before that, I was trying to read Cormac McCarthy, who is also a lot of fun to read, but very challenging to read. Um, anyway, Stephen King does this. He'll end a chapter, in, in, especially in the Dark Tower series. He'll end a chapter saying, and that was the last time they ever saw her. But then the next chapter starts up, she's still alive, that character. And you don't find out how she actually dies until later on. But he kind of, he throws out just a statement, especially at the end of a chapter, to, to hint as to where the narrative's going. Um, it's kind of like on television shows or movies where they give you, they start the movie with the flashback. They show you the end of the story, and then you have to go back. Oh, uh, John Wick 3 is out on digital. That's one that does this. Okay. So I'm not advocating you watch John Wick 3 unless you like, um, you know, basically just violence for about an hour and 50 minutes. Just intense. Over. It's called Parabellum, which means, anybody know? Yeah, para, or about war, yeah, yeah. So it's war, <laughs> start to finish. So it's pretty intense. But it starts, or was that the first movie that started that way? I think actually each of them do that. They start with the end of the story, and then you go all the way back, and you figure out how you end up there. So different ways to do that. And that's what John's doing. Oh, am I back to where we were? No, I gotta go back just a couple verses. There it is. When he says, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He's giving you a hint as to what's to come. Follow so far? So I would say you've got to read that statement in light of not only what's to come, John 7, John 8, but also what we've already heard um, back in 219, 129, and 421 and 29. This whole, he comes to both Jew and Gentile, but the Jews the Jewish leaders anyway don't receive him. Right? Whereas the Galileans and the Samaritans and the you know, the backwoods crowd, they're more than happy to receive him. All right. I'm going to dig into the story now. Unless you got something more there. All right. This... That uh, section of John 7 is <clears throat> yeah. kind of interesting too. Since the disciples are asking Jesus to go to Jerusalem because the face of the tabernacle. Yeah, because that's what you do. And right? he said... Uh, I'm not going because it's not my time to go. Yeah. Yeah, and then he goes anyway, and he, he shows up secretly. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, we'll, we'll just use myself as an example. It's like, you know, having that pastor that's kind of hard to predict, and you're just like, um, 
like you, you, you don't know what dynamite's gonna go off the next time you walk in the room. I kind of like being that way, so keeping you on your toes, surprising you. But I recognize that that could make you very uncomfortable. Is <laughs> every Sunday you come in, it's like, whoa, what's that all about? Well, that's his pastor. He's kind of nuts, you know. And there's Jesus. It's like he's gone, and then he just shows up on the scene, and then he's like walking on water, and it's, you know, he's he's a uh, as C.S. Lewis says, you know, of Aslan, who's the type of Christ, you know. Um, he's he's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion. <laughs> he's not tame. You can't tame Jesus. He does what he does. Um, and we try to we try to just nail him down and simplify, keep keep him comfortable, and he won't have that, you know. So, all right, let's look at this text. Go, your son lives. Uh, first, as a note, some people, my Bible doesn't suggest this, and some probably yours don't either. But some scholars have tried to suggest that this story of the nobleman's son is the same story as the healing of the centurion's servant in the synoptic gospels. Excuse me, gospels, especially. Matthew 8. Um, actually, in our, in our lectionary, we have both stories separately. So that tells you, you know, how the, how the church since Gregory, so since the 6th century, has said these are two different stories. There are some similarities, right? Because you have kind of an important person getting somebody under him healed. And they're both, the thing that's really notable is they're both healed by what? By a word, right? Yeah, because the... I don't know if you know the other story I'm referring to, if you have to flip there, but just briefly, the centurion, um, you know, comes to Jesus and says, you know, Jesus says, I'll come down to your house and I'll heal your servant. And the centurion says, no, you don't need to basically because you've got authority. And like me, I'm a centurion. I tell this guy to go there and I call that guy to go there and he does it. You can just say, my son's healed and he'll be healed. Or my servant, excuse me. And Jesus, of course, says, yeah, that's, that's great faith too, is trusting in his authority. Uh, whereas here... Um, he just asks and Jesus says okay so I mean there are some similarities but some things that are different one they're in two different locations which you can look that up if you like Um, but this one we're in Cana and the other one I think we're in the Decapolis maybe Mm. is that what it is in Matthew I think so Um, the timeline you're at different points in Jesus ministry Uh, the person who's healed and one it's his son the other it's his servant that would be kind of a strange mix-up if you said they were the same story, because that's not at all the same, right? Uh, the character, one is a father, the other is a centurion. So that's, in a sense, a centurion is the father of his soldiers, but or of his servants, but um, in the way that Caesar is the father of Rome, but um, I think that's a stretch too. And actually the answer is different too, because Jesus in one, in this case, says your son lives, and the other one, he says, I'll go down and heal him, and so that's not necessary, which is a confession of faith. So, um, so just in case you ever bump into that, kind of like we were talking about last week with the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000. It's like, oh, well, he did something similar on two different occasions? That's not possible. <laughs> why not? Yeah, why not? And what's to say he didn't do other occasions and these are the ones that are recorded for us? Yeah, so... Um, so John the Evangelist has his own purpose for telling the story. And this is how I'd summarize it. The gift of life brings with it the gift of faith and an increase in the family of God. Now remember, we've been talking about this at length and today we're going to finally tidy it up. As John 1 to the end of chapter 4 is kind of a, it's a nice package um, that teaches baptism. Right? And so what, what, how does baptism, I guess, quote unquote, work? You know, how does it function? I, I don't like those terms, but 
I mean, usually with children, but even with adults, they're brought to baptism, they're given new life, they believe, they confess the faith, right? And they're brought into the household of God. So I don't know if I've ever actually preached this text as a baptism text, but now that we've done the study, <laughs> and we, I see it in context, better in context, having done this really in-depth study with you, um, I can't help but see it as a baptism text now. He comes seeking life um, for his son, his son who is in death. Jesus says, your son lives, right? And now, the, and now he and the whole household believe they're all brought into saving faith. Right? Now there's no water, right? There's only the word. So I can see how you could say, well, you're imposing something on the text. But in the context, as I said, all the language of baptism that's been through these last chapters um, I can't help but see it. Now, maybe the break at the end of chapter four is kind of arbitrary. You know, if you want to say that, you know, that division is kind of artificial or you're, you're applying that, fine. Yeah, Ron. Um, the verse that says the whole household believed. Yes. They didn't hear the word, did they? they not from Jesus directly. Okay. No, they heard the testimony of the nobleman, of the father, mm-hmm. who had heard the testimony of the servants. Yeah, and uh, it's, I mean, Jesus' word works this way. It's kind of like, um, except for where there's too many firemen, it works like wildfire. You know, it just, it spreads. At least it does in the Gospels. And because uh, it's good news. And, you know, I mean, if you're going to gossip about something, gossip about the good news. All right. You know, this thing I saw in church on Sunday was really incredible. You know, this child was brought into the household of God through water and word. Tell everybody about it. Right. Um, that's it. I guess there's such a thing as good gossip then, I suppose. Right? You know? So, yeah, so the whole household believes. And this is unique because you don't, I don't think you see this anywhere else. I know you don't anywhere else in John, and you don't see it in the synoptics either. It does come up in Acts, though, right? With the jailer, where the jailer and then his whole household is baptized. And that text is used actually as a baptismal text, right? To, to, especially for. Um, as kind of a justification. I don't think we, you need it for this, but for infant baptism, right? Did, did it happen with the woman at the well? Well, right, yeah. The word spread, and they're, brought, they're all brought back to Jesus to come find out more. And he stays with them two days and teaches them. Yeah, so um, I think that maybe the thing that is worth noting here, too, is that there's an unfortunate, we'll just call it a modern, but it's really a postmodern tendency of trying to make everything about you individually, singular. Yeah. And that, so that, you know, it's, it doesn't matter what we believe, it's what I believe that matters, ultimately. And this comes up, one kind of poignant place is with the Lord's Supper, where I've encountered it, where you say, where I say, here's what we believe as a church. And he said, that doesn't matter, this is what I believe, right? And I believe that, whatever it is, that it represents body and blood of Jesus, it isn't or that I deserve to come to the supper and it doesn't matter what you say as pastor. And it's like, well, now you're denying the office that the Lord has given me, so that's not good to go against God's word in that way. But also, um, you are being a little presumptuous as to you know, what is um, worthy and well-prepared, according to Luther. Um, why did I bring all that up? Presumption. Oh, we're, we're highly individual, individualistic or... I think, rightly, you can import the Greek notion, we're narcissistic, right? So 
Luther calls, calls that being um, navel gazers. Because remember Narcissus, the legend, he fell in love with his own reflection in the pool. <laughs> and then he dies by the pool, right? Because he's captivated by himself. And he can see no one else. And I, I don't remember all the points of the story, but I think, you know, fair late maidens come by and he doesn't even see them, which is like, what kind of guy are you? <laughs> you know? Who loved him, his appearance? I mean, they, they thought he was handsome or whatnot. There's probably variations in the story. Am I getting it right, Ethan? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so navel gazers is what Luther calls them, which I think was a German idiom. That's not all terribly helpful because you don't see people walking around like this. Unless they've got their smartphone. Oh, there we go. <laughs> In love with themselves. Because um, they, by the way, have you ever like, left home without your phone? And it makes you feel empty. <laughs> it tells you that it's, it's now a part of you. You already have a symbiotic relationship with the internet. You are cyborgs. Sorry. Um, no, uh, it's individualistic. Oh, he says navel gazers. Maybe the easiest thing is to say selfish, that we're, we're, we're selfish. You know, it's all about me. And even if it means I have to step on somebody else to get there. Right. And uh, that's probably I think that's probably the strongest indictment against our current presidency that, that you can level is that it's all about America at the expense of everyone else sometimes. Right. And it, actually at the expense of Americans, too. Like, we're going to do all this tariff war. And you're like, yeah, you know, this actually affects people in a, like a real practical way at home because your Chinese goods cost a lot more and your American goods costs, they're not exported because they cost too much to export. And I know the dairy folks were kind of, they got hit hard right away, right? With, with the dairy tariffs to China. So he's like, that has real consequence. And may, maybe the outcome will be good, but... Um, you know, that whole idea of we're, gonna, we're just going to make America great again, meaning greater than everybody else, um, that's a narcissistic, it's a corporate narcissistic thing, it's a country. But um, um, it's like, yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about the cost, um, not just to us, but to others, to, to go about such a thing. Well, uh, you know, that's our thing, we're, we're selfish. So why did I bring up selfishness? Hmm. What were we talking about? Back up a few steps. What did you bring up, Ron? Oh, you're talking about uh, the whole household believed. Yeah, yeah. So don't keep the faith to yourself. That's where I was going. Whew. Got off. Got off on a political tangent. And then, <laughs> never get back home after that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's. It's not. Jesus died to save you from your sins. Absolutely true. Um, but like I said, it's good news. And, and, and there's more than enough of it, not just for you, but for everybody around you, right? So same with forgiveness, right? You're forgiven, but there's plenty of forgiveness to go around. And there's no reason to hoard that to yourself. Forgive others as you've been forgiven, right? And it, as Jesus called, I mean, it's, it's a cup that overflows. It doesn't have a bot. It's, a, it's the bottomless cup, which we all wish the bar had, right? Like the wine, it just keeps flowing. It's good. Or the fish keep coming, or whatever it is, the thing you like to engorge yourself on. All right, <laughs> moving along. Um, notice, too, to the same point, uh, my, actually, both translations, both the ones up on the screen and the one um, I've got here, New King James, and I don't know about NIV. Oh, no, Ron read it, so I know it said it that way, too. Uh, verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you, 
see signs and wonders you will not believe. And you're, you're said, unless you, you peeps, right? You people. And I think actually, if we scroll, if I roll over this little three, it's going to say, let's see what happens. The Greek for you is plural twice in this verse. Corresponding annotation from Nesleon 27. All right, you don't have to understand that. But unless you, so I translate it this way, if you want to be a Texan, want to be Texans today, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. All right, so who's he talking to? Is he talking to just the nobleman who's just been came to him? No, of course, he, of course not, because he's saying you all. So now he's speaking, the nobleman comes to him, but then he speaks to everybody who's gathered there, the Galileans, the noblemen, all of them. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Is that a rebuke? Right? Remember we just talked about this? Is he saying, you guys need signs, but too bad you're not like the Samaritans who only needed to listen to me. Is that what he's getting at? That's how I've actually preached it that way. Probably mostly. But um, now I'm wondering because, <laughs> again, if, I, if you read this alone, maybe that's the conclusion you came to. But um, if you look at it in context, we've, we've been seeing signs. And the signs have been, again, as you saw back in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, 2 verse 23, the signs actually brought people to faith. So is he saying like signs are like inferior or, you know... You people are, you have weaker faith because you don't have signs? Is that what he's getting at? And I, again, I would say no, just to recap what we said a few minutes ago. Actually, if you look at the purpose statement, so we, we've talked about it a bunch of times, but it's worth jumping there again. Um, back 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other, what? Signs. How many signs in John, by the way? Seven. Seven. Yeah. Nice number, right? Plus or minus, depending on how you number it, but I'd say seven. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he did the sign. The sign is recorded. The recording of the doing of the sign is what we call a testimony. That's the word. So there's a word attached to a sign, actually. Now, for you, you don't get to see the sign. You see, well, actually, you do. You don't see it with your eyes. You see it with your... We talked about this. Earballs. With your earballs. That's right. I like that expression. Yeah. But, uh, well, it's from Luther. Pluck your eyes out and put them in your ears. <laughs> it's so gruesome. But. Oh, now I'm thinking of... Who's the... Oh, that's probably a movie you shouldn't watch either. Um, it's Guillermo del Toro. Del Toro. What is it? Um, and it's about it's it's about dream this kind of demon in a dream I can't remember anyway he, his eyes are in his hand that's really creepy right here. Pan Pan's Labyrinth yeah Pan's Labyrinth thank you that's Pan his eyes are in his hands okay anyway put your eyes in your ears fine tangent sorry there we go uh, so look at this statement. Uh, so third paragraph from the bottom. For John, John, the signs of Jesus and the words of Jesus have the same purpose. They're not opposed to one another. To articulate and demonstrate through hearing and seeing the truth that Jesus is the one who works the work of God. All right. So signs and word go together. 
Now, that's not a problem for us because we talk about that in regards to really every way that Jesus meets us here, now, right? He speaks, but he speaks through the one whom he has sent, right? Which is why we have a thing called ordination. So you can say, that guy is the guy whom the Lord sent to me to preach to me today. Um, the sign of that he baptizes is, of course, there's water. It's not just a word, right? The word is attached to the sign. Same with the Lord's Supper. It's, he says it's his body and blood, but he, it's not just a spiritual, like metaphysical, weird kind of eating and drinking. No, he actually attaches it to a physical sign. Without the sign, without the means, what, what's, what's the deal? What's the problem, I should say? No sign, what are you going to think? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Right? Well, he said that there was this baptism by the Spirit, but baptism means to use water, by the way. So how do I know that that was actually a, a baptism? Because there was no water. And people do this, by the way. There's, like, they have, say there's more than one baptism. There's a baptism with water, and then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is like a fire baptism. But it's like a fire baptism. There's no fire, because we're not going to burn people and say, be baptized. Fireball. That was a joke. Yeah. So signs and, and word go together. It's very Johannine um, for us. That is, according to John, that we, that's actually what Jesus does. And he, he does the signs in John's gospel very clearly. And actually, it's the same in the synoptics um, to show who he is. Right. Remember that like the wedding at Cana comes in what season? Second Sunday of? Epiphany. Epiphany, right? Epiphany, the revealing of who Jesus is. He's been born in the flesh. We were celebrating Christmas. And now we learn who he, who he actually is, although the angels said, and so we shouldn't have a problem. But then all through Epiphany, we see signs. And the last Sunday of Epiphany, the big sign is the transfiguration, right? Where clothes shining like white and his face glowing and all of that. Uh, God in the flesh. The problem with signs And look at these two statements, and we'll tease this out. The problem with signs is that they can hide and reveal. They're capable of misunderstanding and discernment of faith. All right? So, uh, as we were talking about with the Lord's Supper, we can do this with baptism. Uh, You could actually just do this with absolution. Right? Is that it's a wonderful sign to hear the word of forgiveness applied to you personally. Right? In my own experience... There are those who receive that with glad hearts who say, thank God I'm forgiven, right? But it actually also um, is heard as a judgment or as an accusation. And I've I've had this conversation. Like, I really wish, I would come to church more often, but I can't, I I just can't hear that I'm a sinner every Sunday. It's too depressing, it's too sad. You see how the same word does both things at the same time? It brings comfort to, to terrified sinners, but it also terrifies Comfortable sinners, if you want to put it that way. Mm. That's the problem with signs. Even on you know, these true signs that God attaches to the word. right? And actually the Lord's Supper works that way too. Uh, because it's given and, sh- it's given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. And, and then you have folks that say, yeah, that's just not special enough for me. Okay. <laughs> what? what? When did special come into it at all? It's like, are you a sinner? Yes, I'm a sinner. Are you flesh and blood? Yes. Are you going to be tempted? Are you, you live a life in this world? Yes. Does the devil torment you night and day? Yes. Then go to the sacrament. It's, it's not about special or not special or how you even feel about it. It's your, your hunger and thirst that the Lord has given you by the knowledge of your sin. Yeah. 
I was just thinking, can <clears throat> science have anything to do with, let's say, parables? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. But for you, it's been given to know the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Mm -hmm. So the same parable heard by the faithful, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Like last Sunday's parable. People say it's a hard parable. It's like, this is because you're not listening. You don't, well, namely, you're trying to understand the parable apart from Jesus, namely Jesus' own life and ministry, what he actually did. You're like, oh, that's actually Jesus, who's the one who squanders his father's wealth to win friends, on, you know, for heaven, basically for you, right? No, no problem. But for others, it's like, oh man, it's so hard. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. It sounds like, why would God commend an unjust steward that make, or a dishonest manager or however you want to translate it? You know, it, do, it doesn't make sense. So that, that's absolutely right, Ron. You know, it, apart from faith, you'll see something like baptism. You know, we've had, I've had this conversation more times than I ever expected to here. For some reason, we just have you know, kids and grandkids that just never got baptized, that are of members who are here regularly, you know, um, nieces and nephews. And now it's actually bringing, it, for whatever reason, there's a, the conscience has been pricked of, of those other family members who are like, where did we go wrong here? How did, how, did, how did we get a feel where, like, my own kids won't baptize their, their children, my grandchildren, you know? Um, why, why don't they believe it? It may just be simply that the that it look, they've been misled to think that it's just a sign or it's just like a rite of passage. It's just something that Christians do. And, and you know that, no, baptism has a word of God and has a promise attached to it, right? And actually there's, a, um, there's even a, a backspin to that where you know, to deny baptism is to deny the faith. Not necessarily denying the faith to the child, although that's perhaps true too. But actually you're denying your own faith by not bringing your child to baptism. Do you believe the word of Jesus or not, right? So that, that also then is burdening consciences. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, where'd we go wrong? And I think it's a little bit of this, is that it's hard to believe the sign alone. You need the word of God, right? And so a sign can actually, apart from the word, or if you believe a different word than what is actually a part of the sign, um, then it becomes a scandal or a stumbling block for you. Hmm. I don't know, that's not, maybe that was a little intense, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying about here it being, I mean, you could take the sign in the right way or the wrong way. They're capable of both, the sign alone especially. Um, so with the word of God, though, uh, that's what actually leads you out of misunderstanding into faith. So, so we have the same thing here, actually, um, because... Oh, shoot, I have to go back. I'm sorry. I left you up on there. Four verse what? Something like this. All right, yeah. Because we have the royal official. Jesus gives him a sign. His son's dying. He was at the point of death. And Jesus says, your son will live. Beautiful confession. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Right? And so now he's giving that. It's not... <laughs> I might say it this way, prematurely, you know, it's like, you know, because he's still going to die, this boy, right? He still needs the resurrection of the body, you know. Um, although I think there's probably people who say, well, no, because Jesus already gave him a resurrection, he'll never die. I think, well, that's weird. That, is that kid still roaming around on earth? Very strange. Uh, anyway, go, your son will live. So he attaches to the miracle of the son coming from death to life his own word. So now that now the man actually believes 
also with the confirmation of the testimony of his servants, right, at the seventh hour, that that healing came from Jesus and as a result of Jesus's word, right? If Jesus hadn't given that word, then what might he have thought? Oh, it was, it was, the, it was the essential oils that um, the midwife was putting on or something. I don't know. You know, just make some kind of something. It could have been something else. It was the medicine he was taking. Three times he refers to the child being alive. Do you catch that? Go, your son will live. The man believed the word, and he went down and met him, and his son was recovering. By the way, in verse 51, it's not, just, it's not that he's recovering, although that's true, but that he's coming back to... What? Life. Yeah, he's coming back to life. <laughs> I, recovering makes it sound like it's just like... Uh, cold. Yeah, it was a cold. He just had the flu. No, no, he comes back. He's, he's coming back to life. That's what it says, actually. That's why I have that underlined. The, the underlines and the highlights are from when I study the text, actually, to remind me what the big things are. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So what's the emphasis over and over? Death to life. And this will come back again in chapter 5. Um, I give you 521-24, this whole idea of the life. What is 521? Let's just go there. Oh yeah, there you go. Uh, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 21. And then 24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has life eternal and shall not come into judgment but has already passed from death into life I think I made that point for you before didn't I? that as Christians you've already gotten your death over with by baptism and you already live eternally now with Jesus I know it's a little bit like when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun I'm trying to think of the hymn you know, like looking forward to the resurrection, which is true. Um, but we already have the resurrection now by promise um, and confirmation of that promise in his word. Hmm. The result is that the nobleman, his whole household, believed in Jesus and became his followers. Uh, that's a, eh, maybe that's a little bit of an assertion that's not in the text um, that they followed him. But that's what belief does. Um, they lead. Because there's quite a crowd that ends up with Jesus by the end of the gospel. I mean, he's got like a nomadic tribe following him, um, like Moses did through the wilderness, leading him out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? Uh, we know of the twelve who are close by, but then there's the whole they're all camped out. Can you imagine going to the town? It's like, it's like there's a Grateful Dead concert or something. There's there's only so many people who can actually make it into the city. Everybody else is outside. Or it's like the Cubs games. People go to the game, but they don't actually go in. They just hang out in the, on the lawn outside. They're like, why are you going to a baseball game and not actually watching the game? All right, well, whatever. Each to his own. The addition of the whole household, household, again, that's unique here. It's the only place in this gospel where you have that term of the whole household. But again, I think it's a wonderful foreshadowing of the fruit of all of Jesus' work, and namely the fruit of baptism, is it brings the whole, it, it's not just for the individual, but it brings that whole household into faith. All right, now we're going to talk about signs. Again, this is the second sign, right? So John helps us number the signs because he'll, 
he'll use that word very specifically and help you sameon in Greek. Um, note that the conclusion of this story actually parallels the conclusion of the wedding at Cana back in chapter 2. So 3 being a little bit of an interlude, not exactly, I think. So the, like verse, what does 2 verse 9 say? Somebody, somebody there? 2 verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it mm-hmm. came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast away. That's good enough. So Jesus came again to Gal- Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. All right, so there's a parallel. 2 verse 11. Read that one. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Yeah, and then verse 54, chapter 4, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Galilee into, or Judea into Galilee. So you see the parallel there? Which is why I think it is fair to read these two stories next to each other. As, I mean, they're not exactly doing the same thing, but they interpret one another. Um, you know, your son lives is another way of saying, um, I mean, that, that's the benefit of being brought into the marriage of the lamb, you know, to, or the, I should say the bridegroom to his bride, the church, right? Or the lamb to his church. The benefit of that is life. Not just wine, good wine. <laughs> Although um, maybe, maybe if it was actually scotch, that would be nice. Because what, what is, you know what they call you know what they call scotch in Scotland? They don't call it that. That's what we call it, scotch whiskey. It's the, it's the water of life. Yeah. Isn't that nice? And so then, but, so then you have those two stories, chapter 2, chapter 4. What's sandwiched in between? Chapter 3, right? And what, what's right at the center between chapter 4 and chapter 3? Our favorite text, right? John 3, verse... Yeah, 14, 15, 16. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, wait a minute. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, remember that story? There's a sign, a serpent on a pole, but attached to the sign is what? Word of God, which said, anyone who looks on the serpent will live, right? Without God's word, a promise attached to the sign, one, Moses wouldn't have created the sign, two, There'd be no, there's, there's no hope in it. It's just like a totem. Anyway, they looked at the servant. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? So that's what happens with this nobleman's son. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him uh, would be saved, might be saved. And so this is also then connected to earlier in chapter four because Again, the heart and center of the whole life of, of whether it's the, the people at the feast or it's the nobleman and his son and their servants or it's the woman at the well or it's the Samaritans who come back. You know, the, all those stories that surround this, this central um, confession of faith from John the Evangelist, especially, you know, 3, 14, I'd say 15 and six, or 16 and 16 through the end of the chapter. This, it's all about being brought to Jesus. Right? and being gathered to him for salvation and life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now that all seems probably obvious to you. 
because that's how we preach. That's how I preach anyway. That's the kind of preaching you ever hear every week for the most part is that Jesus has brought you to himself to be saved, to, to receive life, to be forgiven, right? That's what, um, why else would you come to church? Well, okay, don't give me all the other reasons you might come to church. Um, but those, that's, that's why Jesus would bring you here. Um, and that's what happens, whether it's the wedding at Cana or it's the, any of these other stories. It's all centered on being brought to faith in Christ. How's that? Yeah. Uh, I would say chapter 5 through 8 is a, or at least chapter 5 through the beginning of chapter 7. So 5 and 6 um, is going to be another division. So, so that's the end of unit 1. All right. Go in the Lord's peace. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.